produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons. On this edition of the program, we discuss peak population and what that means for future generations. One of the biggest issues is going to be economic, and that is how do we afford to take care of everybody and who's going to take care of everyone? And we find out what life may look like in years to come. You look at where we are with medical technology, some of the genetic tweaks that we're starting to get on the verge of having breakthroughs, a whole range of robotics that might come in through there as well. There's people living their lives in a more of a community setting where you can keep an eye on your friends and loved ones much more easily. All these kind of things will help us navigate the challenges that an aging and maybe even declining population will bring the world. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. Well, according to United Nations data, the world's population is expected to peak in just 44 years, at a level of nearly 11 billion people. Increasing life expectancy, combined with falling fertility levels, will see a number of countries experiencing a reduction in population. Many countries will be faced with an ageing population and a comparatively smaller, young population to support them. To get further insights on this, I spoke to Shara Evans, an expert in emerging technologies and one of Forbes' top 50 futurists. Shara Evans, welcome to the program. Hello, Whitney. Thank you so much for having me on today. Shara, if we work off the United Nations data that the global population will peak in around 44 years, what does that actually mean right now for societies and communities around the world? Well, the very first thing I would say is that most population forecasts are based on extrapolations of current trends. However, Whitney, we're in a world situation and technological situation where there are a couple of really extreme wild cards that could have really dramatic impact on the UN's population projection. So what would the wild cards be that you're talking about? Okay, the first one is the pandemic. You know, we all hope that it gets better. But if it gets worse, we could end up with a much lower population than projected. And I certainly hope that that is a scenario that we don't end up with, but it is a scenario that we need to consider. Wildcard number two has to do with radical advances in healthcare. And this is an area where, as a futurist, I do a lot of research and people could live much longer, healthier lives. And that means the population could be dramatically under forecast. So if you can imagine we have new people being born at the same time as people who are already here living vastly extended lives, then we could end up with a much bigger population than anyone has forecast. So, Shara, what do you see as being the biggest challenges when the world hits peak population? Well, one of the biggest challenges of peak population 
first off, we'll be getting food and goods to lesser developed areas, especially areas that don't have good transport systems. That is already a problem. And if you have more and more people living in these types of areas, of course, that problem will get more and more complex. Well, I'm just wondering... Overpopulation is an issue that's been an issue for a long time. But if we reach peak population in 44 years and then we start to have a decline in population, a decline in population and an aging population, I mean, what challenges does that create? Well, there are a number of things that would happen if we have a declining population. And as I said earlier, that may not actually be the case. But let's assume it is the case and that we have many people who are senior citizens and very few young people that are contributing money to taxes and working and so on. One of the biggest issues is going to be economic, and that is how do we afford to take care of everybody and who's going to take care of everyone? So knowing that that could be potentially the future, what should we do now or what can be done now to ameliorate that potential effect? Well, I think that one of the things we will see as we have an aging population and not enough young people or healthcare workers to take care of the population is increasing reliance on technologies that are already in development or on the market to assist with this. But that doesn't get away from the problem of how does one afford to pay for this type of health care if there isn't enough of a tax base to offset it. Does that mean that we need to pay more taxes? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> oh, well, I don't want to <laughs> say that. That'll be highly popular. <laughs> no, it will not be popular at all. And I actually have a little bit of a hypothesis of what might happen in the coming years. Mm. There will be a class of people that are very wealthy and privileged and will have access to the very best health care and all the luxuries you can imagine. And they're not going to have problems. Then we're going to have another class of people, which will probably be the vast majority of people on the planet, and some will be better off and others a lot worse off. They won't have access to the same level of health care and amenities as those who are extraordinarily wealthy. Mm. And then the third class which I can already see starting to emerge, but not in a really big way yet, will be those people who are partially off-grid. So they're not going to disconnect from society, but I can see that communities could start to form where you have like-minded people that have a range of different skill sets and instead of trading things with money, which is what we're used to trading with. They bring back the barter system. Yes, exactly. And, you know, these communities of like-minded people start banding together. And as people age, it's not so much what that person can physically do. It's the wisdom that that person might have. And even if they're ill, they still get cared for because they've been part of that community for a period of time. 
at the moment we're kind of in this zone of overpopulation and climate change and humans' effect on the earth. But yet if we reach peak population and population starts to decline, that brings with it a whole bunch of challenges as well. So are there ways of kind of balancing that or is that just a fantasy? A really top priority is to stop polluting really taking care of our environment, irrespective of the number of people that we have living on this planet. I really am very keen on all kinds of alternative energies. And I'm not just talking about solar, although that is quite popular now, but there are many new technologies that we can invest in that will be good for the environment and good for people and provide renewable resources that don't harm the environment, are very inexpensive, and literally utilize forces that are natural on the planet. These are the sorts of things that we should be looking at and investing in because one of the pressures that we'll have irrespective of peak population or lower population, is being able to pay for enough energy to give us all the luxuries or the health care that we need. Shara Evans, thank you for joining the program. It's been my pleasure, Whitney. get a different perspective on peak population and where we're heading as a society, how we can handle these challenges and what trends are emerging, I caught up with KPMG's urban and regional demographer, Terry Ronsley. Terry Ronsley, welcome to the program. Whitney, great to be here. So Terry, what is peak population? Peak population is kind of a, a demographic term where we look at the age structure of the planet, we look at the births, you know, when we expect people to die over time, and we kind of get to this point where the population starts to turn. So instead of increasing, as it was done over the last, you know, couple of hundred years, it starts to turn downwards and decline. So that, that peak mm. in the demographic forecast is kind of what we mean by peak population. Mm. So if the UN is predicting in 44 years that we reach peak population, why is it, like, what, what should we be concerned about or why are we concerned about peak population? Yeah, so it's, it's more about when you have to dig down from that total population number for the world into sort of the age groups. And what we see is that part of the reason why the world's population is going to peak likely in 44 years is that we have an aging population. So for a long time, we've been having less and less babies born to sort of replace the people who are ahead of them. And we've also had this extension of life expectancy. So, you know, 30 years ago, we we're probably expecting people to live to 60 or 70. And now we're kind of expecting them to live to um, 80 or 90. The drop in babies being born, can that be directly linked to women choosing their careers over having a family early on and, you know, women are tending to have children later in life? Yeah, so there's a couple of things happening. One is that um, women are looking for a, what we call in the economics trade, you know, a return on their education. So they've 
finished school, gone to university, invested a long time in their education, and they want to draw on that over time. Mm -hmm. So that means you see less women having children, and those women who are having children are having less of them. Right. So this is sort of driving that decline in the total fertility rate. So what we've got is this much older population with people living longer. And this is kind of the challenge when it comes to peak population. We have more and more older people who tend not to be working and fewer people of working age who tend to pay the taxes, which help support the older people. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's the issue that most people talk about and it's been sort of in the news is overpopulation. But this really isn't about overpopulation. And to your point about striking that balance, uh, how, how do you strike that balance? Yeah, often, you know, people talk about this overpopulation, peak population, or even this overconsumption. And Mm. and often a lot of the environmental issues that the planet's facing isn't necessarily about more people. It's about some segments of the planet overconsuming natural resources. If we all lived like Americans or even, you know, Australians in terms of our resource consumption, we quickly run out of resources on the planet. Mm. But if more of the planet lives like Europeans and their sort of consumption patterns, it becomes less of a strain on the planet dealing with seven or eight billion people. When you say Europeans, what do you mean? What are they doing so differently from, say, Americans or Australians? Yeah, so obviously energy generation is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, Australia and the US, you know, still got high proportions of fossil fuels, whereas for a long time, Germany, France, you know, they've been moving towards wind-powered, solar. The way they structure their cities is also important. Mm-hmm. The US and Australia are often very car-dependent cities, where you look at sort of Paris and Berlin, mass transit-orientated cities, less car pollution coming out, less distance travelled. Mm. So those kind of impact on the bottom line on your um, draw on the planet's resources. So do you think that, that it is actually overconsumption rather than overpopulation? Yeah, I think that's the, the biggest strain that we're seeing here because... The population in the world's kind of gone from a billion people 200 years ago. Mm. Um, fast forward today, it's sort of eight-ish billion people. And what's happened over that time, there's been a whole range of technological improvements in terms of healthcare, crop yields, we can feed more people. Mm. All these kind of things have helped us adjust and get more um, efficient use of our resources over time. And I think the same thing's going to happen over the next 200 years as we have more people or about the same number of people will be able to use our natural resources more effectively and we'll have mm-hmm. a less of a strain on the planet's resources looking forward. To what extent has that development changed the uh, level of consumption? So, for example, some people are eating chicken or fish or whatever every day. Once upon a time, they might eat it once a week. So those trends, are, are they also fueling overconsumption, the sort of belief that I can have anything whenever I want it? Yeah, pe- people's consumption baskets, so you know what they consume on a day-to-day basis, has changed over the last 30 years, especially in developed countries. Mm. And, and this has kind of added to the burden on the planet, especially in East Asia, as incomes have increased They've moved to a more Western-style diet, which is more mm. protein-heavy, more beef, more chicken. And those products require more resources to produce them, opposed to a more plant-heavy diet. But then even going back, there's this sort of much more globalised supply chain where you can go into your local supermarket and find some oranges from California. So obviously they've travelled across the Pacific, um, mm. sometimes in a cargo hold of a plane or some other method. In the past, you would just had no oranges on your shelf for a period of time. Yeah, that's right. And then you have this kind of other very weird situation where like 
In the UK, they catch shellfish, crabs, which then get put on a boat and sent to somewhere like Thailand and are then canned and then put back on a boat and the cans are sent back to the UK and consumed. So what, is it, what drives that? Is that a cost thing? That, that's a, a cost thing because um, the cost of labour in the UK is mm. much more expensive than in Thailand. But the crazy thing that makes it happen is the cost of transport is so low. Right. So putting the raw materials, raw food onto a boat and shipping it all the way to Thailand, not a big cost on the whole sticker price of the canned wood at the end. Mm. So it sort of makes it possible to shift this food halfway across the world, process it and then shift it all the way back. But that's all creating these additional food moles that can add into your footprint. So, okay, so the flip side of that is the paddock to plate, buy local, go to the markets, you know, I'm going to buy a chicken, I want to know what farm it came from, I want to know if it had a name, I want to know what its family's was like, you know. <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw Portlandia, but there's a, a great sketch on it about, you know, is this chicken local? It's Dana. I'll be uh, taking care of you today. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you uh, just... The chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland-raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. You have this information. This is fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, his name was Colin. Here are his papers, okay? That's great. He, he looks like a happy little yeah. guy who runs around. A lot of friends, other chickens as friends. Um, they do a lot to make sure that their chickens uh, uh, are very happy. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, Terry, is, is that movement gaining traction and could that counteract this overconsumption trend? Yeah, and you can start to see in the last five years of the consumption data that consumers are starting to twig about if I eat steak dinner seven nights a week, that's creating a bit of a problem for myself in terms of my health, mm -hmm. but also it's creating a burden for the environment. So the people are saying, well, let's, let's sort of sub out our meat and three veggies every night and have a pasta dish. You know, let's have more plant-based proteins to get through there. So mm -hmm. consumers are kind of twigging on this. And when they are having the steak dinner a couple of nights a week, they want to know more about that particular product, you know, is it raised in a sustainable way? Is it well treated? Is it the best quality? Because they're willing to sort of pay a premium for that experience. So that, that's sort of one segment of society. But then there's another segment who are very price sensitive in terms of what they're buying. So they're really about, well, I've got a certain amount of money. I'm not too fussed where my chicken or beef came from. I'm just going to buy the cheapest product to feed my family. Mm. Just on the meat-free alternative protein, do they in and of themselves cause problems? Because I've read stories about how in order to create that kind of product, you need a lot of resources, a lot of water, a lot of land, etc. What's your view on that? Some of these uh, new products are still emerging, so we haven't quite got our heads around the long-term ecological impacts of them. Mm. And it, it's probably going to take us a while to work through and say, well, is this the most efficient way of producing food? But kind of for me, the more game-changing impact is synthetic meat. Where they're sort of growing hamburgers in test tubes. So that... <laughs> I just had this vision of hamburgers being grown in a test tube. Whitney, that's exactly what it's like. There's this Petri dish where your burger's being created. Um, so that, that's sidestepping all the problems you have with the environmental impact of, of cattle. Mm -hmm. But obviously, the current cost of a test tube hamburger is incredibly expensive. But over time, as they get into mass production, that's a way to sort of provide protein to people at the right price point in a more sustainable way. 
Mm. You then create this mm. two-speed mm-hmm. price points when it comes to, to beef. You know, the people who still want to eat beef, they're the ones who want to know, well, where is this cow from? What did it eat? What was its friends' names, et cetera, That's et cetera. right. What family did it come from? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, under this scenario, in 30 years' time, beef could be like wine is today, you know? You buy a wine because it came from a certain region and mm-hmm. that, in a particular year because it was good weather. You might be the same thing at a restaurant going, tell me all about uh, this cow and, you know, how's its life? And you make your selection based on that rather than just having a piece of meat-based protein plopped on the plate. One of the things that Shara mentioned was that we'll live less as individuals. Um, I, I think at the moment, the fastest growing household in at least Australia is the single person household. Yeah. And Shara mentioned that what will happen is we will start to want to live in close proximity as communities, you know, having our own gardens and sharing with our neighbours and bringing back the barter system and that sort of thing to address some of the changes that peak population will bring on it or, you know, inequities that peak population could possibly bring on. Yeah, I think Shara made some good points about that changing social structures in certain groups. And you're right that the the lone person household is the fastest growing. And that comes from both ends of the demographic. One is you've got older people, partner passes away, they remain living alone, which is kind of the, the classical kind of lone person uh, mm. household in Australia. But then also you've got the other end, the 20s and 30s of people who aren't marrying or coupling up and are choosing to live alone mm. as well. Mm. So this is kind of, you know, a 20-year trend we've seen. But what we've sort of seen in the last five years is that in that younger end, you're starting to see more friends buying a home together. Yeah, um, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, and, and part of it is, is a housing affordability challenge, but it's mm. also about, well, look, having a friend close by you can go to the bars with and yeah. um, do all those sorts of things is really important. And then there's even models where there's communal living where you might have four or five families living together on a single property to Mm. pool resources. And they tend to be more of, you know, mum and dad and two or three kids coming through there. And then at the other end, aged care is kind of going through a bit of a change as well, where people are looking for a more vibrant community where they can come together and interact with people of their own ages there as well. So we're starting to see these kind of things pop up in response to people looking to live their lives in in a different way. So what do you, as a demographer, you know, this is your area of expertise looking into the future, what do you, what do you see, you know, in 44 years' time, if you could make a prediction or, you know, what, what's the sort of picture that you see? Yeah, look, it's, it's, I think it's still a population globally, which is probably still growing, but there's probably going to be a huge, you know, global shifts. We've already seen Europe is at the forefront of this ageing turning point in the populations. It's had lower birth rates. It's had lower international migration to sort of top up the population. So mm-hmm. you're kind of seeing the challenges there already in terms of fewer opportunities for young people, you know, strain on the pension system. So I think over the next 40 years, we'll kind of see East Asia start to go through that same sort of phase. So China's population of a billion plus is feeling the effects of the one-child policy. And they've, they've recently changed their policy. So how long do you reckon that that will take to come into effect, that they'll feel the change from that? Yeah, well, the, the challenge is they, they changed the policy and said, all right, everyone can go have two children now. 
Um, but people weren't lining up to have that second child. <laughs> So they were used to having one or none, and yeah. now they're now they're keen not to have any. Yeah, <laughs> or, and, and yeah. it's going to take a while to turn that um, ship around. Well, it reminds me of that famous speech by Peter Costello. <laughs> yeah, have one, one, one for mum, one for dad, and one for the country. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think it's going to be hard for them to sort of turn that boat around over the next forty-four years. Mm. Um, the states probably got enough demographic factors that it'll transition or renew itself better. Mm. And probably you look at places like Africa and South America, which will have these much, much younger populations, you know, global investment will get drawn there. You'll probably see like an industrialization of Africa, like you've seen in East Asia over the last 50 years, which Mm. will shift the balance of power um, across the world. And I think Australia is probably going to keep on going the way it's going because we, we've done not too bad over the last 20 years, you know, thanks to Peter Costello's baby bonuses to a small degree, um, mm-hmm. international migration. But kind of for Australia, it's now a bit about these things we've talked about, like how do we make it easier for people to have more children? So mm. to maintain your population, you need on average 2.1 children being born all the time. And we're kind of more like 1.7, 1.8. So... Looking forward, though, with ageing populations, who's going who's gonna to look after those societies? I mean, do you see people kind of banding together and living, as we discussed before, or do you think there will be also technology involved like robots and things like that? Yeah, I think there's going to be a, a combination of solutions. Um, mm-hmm. One is people banding together to look after each other. You know, definitely technology to keep people healthier and more mobile, more active for longer. There's also like, you know, Service robots, for example, can um, you know fulfil the needs which are currently fulfilled by an, a person coming into your home to help you live when you're older. But are we there yet with service robots, or is that sort of a fictitious uh, thing at the moment? Yeah, I think at the moment we're we're not there, but mm. in 44 years' time, there'll probably be. Um, it'll be uh, Blade Runner. That's what it'll be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> didn't mean to be so dystopian, but anyway. <laughs> Um, so I don't think we're quite, we're, the replicants won't quite be here. Right, okay. Um, All right. But there'll be, you know, robots who can help you clean your house. There'll be artificial intelligence who'll check in on you every morning. Mm. You know, you, you put your finger on the dial and it'll say, yes, Whitney, your blood pressure's fine. You know, your cholesterol's all good. Well, my Apple Watch already does that. Not the cholesterol and stuff, but it will, it's got all the health sort of stuff that's already doing that. Exactly. And, and kind of extending that to sort of being, Someone who also, you know, will ask you a series of questions to make sure you haven't had a stroke overnight. High level functions, which maybe a nurse might have to do now, or you have to be chatting to someone mm. to um, talk through. So I think all those kinds of things would help you live independently for longer. And then the longer you stay in your own home and live happily, you're less of a burden on society in terms of healthcare, care, um, aged care provisions and a whole range of other um, costs that come with that. I think what it would be good is if we had like in Star Trek, you know, and there's no surgery. They just wave that thing of injury and it just automatically gets fixed. I, I think that's probably a ways off, right, Terry? Uh, yeah, I think we're not quite at the, <laughs> the, the tricorder. Yeah, is that I what it was in Star exactly Trek? What it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think you look at where we are with medical technology, you know, um, some of the genetic tweaks that we're starting to get on the verge of having breakthroughs that, you know, if you have a heart problem, can we just do a bit of tweaking with your DNA to make that heart problem go away? Mm. Or a whole range of robotics that might come in through there as well. There's all these technological improvements can help us 
live longer and happier and more productive lives. And what they look like, I, I can't quite say, but there's all these different trances of advancements, whether it's in artificial intelligence, robotics, you know, my my burgers in the test tube um, <laughs> examples, um, people living their lives in different ways and more of a community setting where you can keep an eye on your friends and loved ones mm. much more easily. All these kind of things will help us navigate the challenges that are an aging and maybe even declining population will bring the world. Well, you know, one thing is for sure, I think you're right on the replicants. They won't be here in 44 years' time. So that's probably a good thing to um, to keep in mind. Terry Ronsley, thank you for joining the program. Whitney, my pleasure. All right, well, that's all for the show. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the program. And if you're interested in checking out the buy local clip from Portlandia, it'll be in the show notes. And if you need a laugh, as we all do at these times, it's really hilarious. That's all for now. Until next time, thanks for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>